You know, I would not disagree with you that more than likely our father was expressing confusion in that in that posting. I'll give you that. But what is heartbreaking to me as well is the timing of that release by him on the heels of this letter where I poured out my heart to my that's my father. That's my dad. Hello, OVM family. It's Linda Laurel. We have another terrific, courageous conversation today with a young woman who reached out to me and shared a letter that she wrote and read to her family. She is of mixed race and was raised by a white family. We are going to be talking with her and her white brother, who was a natural child of the parents who raised them. As you might imagine, conversations about race are difficult in any, in any situation, but certainly in this particular family dynamic, and there are many other dynamics that are, that are part of this equation that we'll talk about. But I give this brother and sister a lot of credit for agreeing to have this courageous conversation on the podcast. I really believe that what they have to share with us will help other families who are also engaged in courageous conversations across our country and trying to do a better job of understanding each other and listening to each other with love and respect. So with that, let's begin our conversation. Tanya Kemper and Terry Hochstedler, thank you both so much for agreeing to have this courageous conversation. I know that um, it's not always easy to, to talk about um, difficult topics, and race is certainly one of them. And we're having this conversation now as a nation. Um, and I believe and hope that this conversation will help other families that are that are finding themselves in the same situation in the same situation as, as your family. So Tanya, you reached out and shared with me that you felt compelled to write this letter to your family. Why? Yes, um, I did reach out to you, and I'm. I'm uh, I guess I would tell you that you know, after enduring the news, recent news cycles and the societal unrest and the murder of George Floyd, um, the situation with Amy Cooper, you know, in Central Park, I just, it, it just stirred something in me um, so much that I, I could not ignore it. And I felt compelled to do something, you know, what can I do to help? I kept asking myself, how can I make a difference? I want to make a difference. I want to use my voice. Um, and so I, I sat with that for a little while. And after about a week or so, you know, I, I felt like I had my answer. And the answer was to start with my family. And, um, you know, I am from a, a very ethnically diverse family. Um, I was adopted as a baby uh, by a Caucasian family who had three natural born children of their own prior to adopting me. And then they adopted another biracial child. So it rounded out our family with five siblings. And, you know, within our own family, again, we've got a diverse mix of people. And so I felt compelled to start with my own family and I sat down and I, and I wrote a letter to them. Were you worried about what their reaction was going to be? Uh, you know, I, I think, I think I would say yes, somewhere there was some concern, but that wasn't as great as this urge I felt to do something. Um, you know, I've always been a very outspoken individual and I really um, pay attention to things that, you know, this unctioning on the inside of me. And it was so strong in that moment that to not respond to it um, would have been more upsetting or more concerning to me. And I, I also am an individual who feels like, you know, if I stand in my truth, if I tell my truth, then, you know, I, I've been true to myself and I owe that to myself more than anything. That's a driving principle for me. 
And so, you know, sure, you know, you wonder how are people going to receive this? What will the reaction be? But, um, you know, it, it didn't overcome the strong urge I felt to just do this. Prior to this, had your family ever talked about race at all in, in any way, shape or form? You know, I, I would say to you, certainly not in my adult life. Um, perhaps it came up a little here, a little there, as I was a child growing up. Um, I just have, you know, vague recollections of, you know, times that maybe I would recall my family talking about, you know, incidences that happened or things that they were exposed to. But um, it, it was very, very little. And I always felt like I was kept very sheltered from that. So, um, you know, definitely not as an adult, though. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you to, to read um, a, a little bit of the letter, um, if you wouldn't mind, um, just starting with the, the part where you, you talk about where you say you may or may not be aware of the racial slurs. So why don't you pick it up from there? And, and we're, we're going to post the entire letter just so our audience knows. We will post the entire letter on, the, on our website. So go ahead, Tanya. Okay. Uh, you may or may not be aware of the racial slurs and racially motivated hate our family experienced while I was a child, but I am. You may or may not be aware of the racial slurs and racially motivated hatred I have personally experienced, but I am. Have you stopped to consider how the current climate of our country impacts our family, your family? Perhaps you have, but did it stop there? Did you reach out to check on your minority family members? Have you voiced your feelings about it in your communities, with your friends, with those you associate with? Have you been part of finding a solution? Have you been inconvenienced by the current climate? Have you been made to feel uncomfortable in the current climate or status quo of our country? Or, on the other hand, have you been silent through all of this? To be silent is to be complicit. Have you stood on the sidelines quietly watching and observing, perhaps hoping it will dissipate? Does it trouble you that your own minority family members are living through a time of great upheaval, unrest, violence, and hatred, all because of the color of their skin? So Terry, when you heard that, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Um, I, I think my first response was, wow, <laughs> she, she's absolutely right. Um, I haven't put this in perspective of how this is affecting her, how this is affecting her children. Uh, at the time, uh, Vanessa, her daughter lives in Indianapolis and um, I wasn't even aware that there's major riots going on in Indianapolis near where she lived. I, my wife and I have chosen to kind of keep the news off more than on during this um, uh, pandemic just because it's so negative all the time. We got kind of tired of listening to all the negativism. And so we weren't, you know, we heard things happening in Minneapolis. We heard about George Floyd. We heard about um, the riots and and all of that, but not in a personal way that it was affecting our family. I, I thought of Tanya, but I, I thought of Tanya, she lives in a town, very South Texas, um, where I, I, you know, I've, I, I guess I kind of figured if, if something was going on dramatic in her life that was dangerous, she would let us know. And that's kind of how we are as a family, just give you a little background. We, we don't stay in real close touch except through my parents. I, I think our parents are kind of the central spoke. I talk to them every week and I find out how Tanya's doing and I find out how Greg's doing and how, you know, they fill me in and many of the siblings call them or live close enough to them to, to fill them in. And so I always feel connected through them. Um, but we haven't been since, you know, since we graduated from high school, we haven't been a close knit, stay in touch every kind of week family. So mm -hmm. when Tanya wrote this letter and shared how the stuff that's happening in our nation is personally affecting her and affecting her kids. That, that hit me right in the heart um, because I didn't, I didn't consider how it impacts her um, and, and just, you know, how something in the nation would impact her. In some ways I feel disconnected from that reality of something that's happening afar if, it, if it's not impacting me directly, I don't, I don't necessarily take it on. 
um, real strongly in my emotions, but it's, I guess I want to understand that more of how this um, movement in the, in all of America impacts you directly, especially Tanya, how does it impact you in South Texas? Do you feel like it's, it's strongly like going outside your house? Do you feel um, threatened or you feel different um, now that this is going on and, and on your daily life? How does that impact you? You know, um, and I appreciate the question. Honestly, I do. I in South Texas, exactly where I do live. You know, it it is roughly around ninety eight percent Latino in the community that I live in. Um, so you know, it, the Caucasian race is the minority. Um, you know, I, most people think that I'm Latino, um, so I I kind of fit in or blend in, I guess I would say. But there's a very small, like one to two percent African American population here. So do I feel uncomfortable or threatened in this community? Not at all. Absolutely not. I look like almost everybody here. Um, so it, not whatsoever, none whatsoever here. Um, in other communities, you know, that I've lived in, I mean, most immediately prior to living here, um, I lived in Birmingham, Alabama. And there, absolutely it was absolutely noticeable, palpable, um, but not here. I don't feel that here. Um, and I'm thankful for that because at least that provides a level of comfort. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, my daughter's in Indianapolis, my son lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And so, you know, I'm always, and I have two grandchildren, so, you know, they're in Indianapolis as well. So, you know, I, I think more of them, but right now where I live, you know, no, I don't feel like I experience it. Um, you know, daily or to go out in my community, not at all. Um, I, I'm comfortable from that perspective. But I will say, I do still feel, um, you know, that there's an opportunity even in my own community to help uh, express and help under help them understand even the difference in the way African Americans feel. I mean, even though the Latino community here is very populous, um, you know, within the whole country, of course, Latinos are not the major, you know, ethnic group. So just maybe to help my local community have a greater understanding of the impact for African Americans, mm -hmm. I do feel a sense of obligation to do that. So, Tanya, as you were reading the letter um, to your family, and um, were, you, were you aware of how it was being received at all? Could you, I mean, this, of course, happened over Zoom. Um, so what were you, were you looking to kind of gauge reactions, or, or, or did you just have your head down and you just kind of plowed through? Yeah, I, I did have my head down because I was reading, you know, from the, the letter that I had printed. Um, and, but my children were on the Zoom call as well. Um, and they're adult children. So they, you know, after the call was over, you know, the three of us connected and they were able to just share, um, you know, observations that they made um, throughout the call. So I, I personally was not able to, you know. What, what, were, what were the observations? And then Terry, also, what were you observing among your family members as Tanya was reading the letter? Um, so my, what my children shared were, their observations were that um, they thought that, so I, I have three, there were three siblings, you know, even though there's five of us, Terry was on the call, uh, my brother Greg, my sister Carmela, those were the three siblings. My youngest brother Jason was unable to join. So they were the three siblings on the call. Um, Terry's wife, Karen, was on the call, and then my parents were on the call. So the observations from my children were, you know, that Terry and Karen seemed most engaged, most responsive, most impacted just from reading the looks or, or, or the comments that they made. Um, I, next, they said that they felt like, you know, their papa, my father, seemed to be most impacted. Um, you know, my sister, you know, was a very hard read, according to them. Um, they, they just really couldn't tell what was going on on the inside of her. Mm -hmm. She kind of had this Mm -hmm. You know, just consistent look. Um, right. Similar for my mother, I would say it was she was a tough read. And then my brother Greg, um, you know, they remarked that he was looking down from time to time. They didn't know what that was about. What, what was he thinking or feeling, Terry? Right. Terry, what did you what What did you observe, and what were you thinking as this whole process was unfolding? Um, <clears throat> I, I think I would agree with the. 
perceptions, Carmelo being hard to read and Greg kind of looking down. Um, you know, it was the first time we were hearing the letter and it was really, so we, we're supposed to have a family gathering coming up for my mother's 80th birthday. And so when Hanya put the invitation out, I thought it was because we were going to talk about grandma's birthday coming up and just, you know, family dynamics. What are we going to do? You know, how are we going to get together? And so it was a little bit, I wouldn't say blindsided, but it was just a surprise that the purpose of the meeting was very different than what um, I thought we were sitting down to discuss. And it's not that Tanya um, in any way tried to deceive us. It's just she invited us to a meeting. And then as we got into the meeting, she said, the purpose of this meeting is I've written this letter and I want to share it with you and I want to get your perspective on it. Going back a little bit, though, I think... I, I told you this, Linda, the other day when I was talking to you about our family background. Um, when we adopted Tanya, I was four years old. When we adopted Jason, I was six years old. In my memory, Tanya and Jason have been my brother and sister since I was a kid. Since I was, I, I don't, you know, since I remember, they've been my brother and sister. Um, they've not been my adopted brother and sister. They've not been my black brother and sister. They've been my brother and sister. And that's how we grew up. We were all siblings. Um, inside the four walls of our house, we were a family and we didn't look at each other with this, by the color of our skin. Our parents taught us very clearly that we all bleed the same color. Um, you know, we need to embrace God loves red, yellow, black, and white. <laughs> we used to sing that song growing up. Jesus loves all the children of the world. Um, and so I didn't feel, and I think Greg and Carmela may feel a little bit this way of like, why, you know, Tanya, why do you feel like our family is maybe caught up in this racial thing that's going on in our country when we've seemed to not wrestle with those things? And when we don't talk about it um, growing up, maybe it was more because we just didn't feel like it was an issue amongst us, between us, like. Mm -hmm. we're all brothers and sisters and growing up in the same family with mom and dad and, and in a healthy, loving environment. And um, do we need to talk about it? Is it, but you know, one thing that very much concerned me was when I graduated from high school, we lived in Michigan and Indiana and Michigan was kind of where we originally grew up. And it was much different than the South. And my parents moved to South Carolina when I graduated high school. And Tanya and Jason went with them. They were the ones left in the household in Tanya going into her first year of high school into a Southern high school with the black and white dynamic being mm -hmm. very different than up North. Yeah. And, and Tanya, you, you talk about that in the letter a little bit, don't you? Yeah. Can you, can you read that portion of the, of the letter for us and, and then, and then talk about what that experience was like for you? Sure. Um, so, you know, Terry's right. You know, we did move to South Carolina um, when I started high school. In fact, I think I had actually started in Michigan two, three weeks, and then we moved. It just, it just was how the timing of it was. And, um, you know, what took us down there, my father, our father, is uh, was a pastor at the time, actively, you know, pastoring a church. And so he had a transfer, if you will, an opportunity to go down there and take over a church. And so, um, you know, I, I, other than my uh, younger brother, who's also biracial, I had never gone to school with any um, children that looked like me. Um, it was a completely, you know, white environment. And so here we were um, down there, you know, in 1984, and it was really was a culture shock. Um, and so, you know, I remember very shortly after uh, moving there, two instances actually that that stick out in my mind when my parents took me to high to the high school to enroll um that particular day i remember you know sitting in the guidance counselor's office and as we were going through the obligatory paperwork and things of that nature there came a portion of the paperwork where it asked you to identify you know your ethnicity and uh you know this was long before you had the option of two or more races and so I, I, I think what I recall is I must have checked black on there. 
And I remember when I turned it back to the guidance counselor, he said, are you sure you want to do that? You know, maybe you should just check this here. And he pointed to the Caucasian one, um, you know, and I kind of looked at him and I looked at my parents and I, you know, in the moment I thought, well, okay, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I can be a conformist. I guess I was at the time I was a teenager, so I changed it. I didn't really think much of it, but you know, a year or two later, it, it became an issue because I remember being approached when it was time for student body um, government elections. And the teams, you know, your president, VP, secretary, and treasurer, the one requirement of the school was that you had to have at least one minority in your ticket or on your ticket. And so um, the individuals that approached me were all Caucasian and I didn't think anything of it really when they approached me, I agreed to do it. And I got called down to the principal's office after we had um, submitted our, our paperwork for that. And this same guidance counselor said, you know, Tanya, um, you're not gonna be able to be, you, you can't fulfill this for them as the minority um, person on the ticket because you have white on here. You know, that's, that's how you identify. And I just, you know, it just left me feeling so, honestly, I was just astounded, I, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Did yeah. you, did you talk about this at all with your, with your parents, with your no. family? Did, you didn't tell anybody what had happened? No. Yeah. No. I did not. I just, I just, with, I did not change the selection in the guidance counselor's office. I withdrew my name from, you know, the ticket and they had to find somebody else. That's how mm -hmm. it was, you know. It was just a very confusing type of thing. Um, yeah. And the other, you know, the other scenario that really stuck out with me is, as I mentioned, my dad was a pastor at the time, and they took this new church down there, and, and the former pastors were gone. They had already transitioned out. So the kind of the leadership team, if you will, the couple, the primary couple that my parents were relying upon for guidance and things um, was this couple, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Good. And... And I remember meeting them and being introduced to them. But at some point in time later, shortly thereafter, I remember my mother telling me that, you know, when she approached Mrs. Good about her thoughts regarding what would be the best school district for our family to settle in, because my mother, you know, wanted to do what she could to try to ensure Jason and I felt comfortable and that we were in an environment that would be welcoming. She goes on to tell me that Mrs. Good told her, well, you know, surely you have to understand Jason and Tanya will always be seen as second class citizens. And, you know, it, I how did, don't. How did your mother respond to that? Do you know? I genuinely have no memory of anything other than the delivery of that. Um, as so it I, wasn't, it wasn't, and I stood up to her and said, how dare you? And that's not, you know, it, it was not, there was none of that. It was just, this is what she said. I don't recall that. You know, mm -hmm. I think I was so shocked, so taken aback at that statement. And it becomes this scenario where you don't really hear anything else beyond that. So, you mm -hmm. know, I, I would not say emphatically she didn't say anything else. I honestly don't remember anything. Mm -hmm. And I just... Every time I reflect back on that, I am left with this feeling of, you know, who's there to defend me or my brother? You know, so many companies are stepping up to help their communities through this challenging time. And here in Texas, one of those companies is HEB. The grocery giant has shown time and again that it knows how to handle a crisis which is why it was ready to jump into action when the scope of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent. The company's efforts and expertise were highlighted in a recent Texas Monthly article, quoting here, San Antonio-based HEB has been a steady presence amid the crisis. The company began limiting the amounts of certain products customers were able to purchase in early March, extended its sick leave policy, and implemented social distancing measures quickly limited its hours to keep up with the needs of its stockers, added a coronavirus hotline for employees in need of assistance or information, and gave employees a temporary increase in mid-March. I've shopped at HEB from the moment they came to Houston almost 20 years ago. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, HEB. Tanya, Tell me, what has been your parents' reaction to this letter? Have you spoken with them, talked to them at all in the aftermath of this? 
So, you know, my father actually did, you know, on the call that day, he expressed a couple of things of, you know, appreciation for reaching out and an acknowledgement that he, you know, thought he was doing okay or doing well in that area, but that he could do better. Um, and then a couple of days after he did send an email, which it went to the group, you know, my entire family that was on the call, um, basically kind of reinforcing that message, you know, that he, you know, intends to use his platform um, and use his voice you know, and, and to speak out about these things and that, you know, he just thinks that that's important. And that was kind of the general overall message, which, you know, left me in the moment feeling, okay, you know, that's good. I'm, I appreciate that response. And I, in turn, responded to his email and, and just simply said, you know, dad, I appreciate that. Um, if there's anything I could do to help with that, you know, if you need to talk to somebody or run something by somebody, I'm happy to do that. And then aside from that, you know, I called him, of course, for Father's Day and wished him a happy Father's Day. Um, and, and, that, and that's it. I've not heard anything else from him. Um, not directly. Now, I will tell you that a couple of days ago, um, my son actually reached out to me. You know, I'm, I'm not on Facebook, and, but my children are. And my son reached out to me a couple of days ago and shared with me a Facebook posting that my father had made, his papa, um, that my son found, you know, distressing. And he... What, what did the post say? Well, he shared it with me, so I had it in black and white to read, but, you know... It talked about, you know, just frustration over, you know, there's there's this, then there's that. So, for instance, we should be socially distancing, but now it's okay to protest because somebody has died. It's okay to go out. It talked a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement and questioning if Black Lives Matter, you know, what about Black babies? And, and a lot of comments in there and just, you know, confusion surrounding, you know, why, you know, there's riots and killing of, you know, Black police officers and, and, and destroying of Black businesses. And if black lives really matter, what about these black lives? And even went so far as to say, you know, when my black conservative friends speak up, they're told to shut up by, you know, blacks who are not conservative. And it, yeah, it was honestly, I have been left a little dumbfounded by it. Um, you know, my son was was very disheartened, um, even expressed that, you know, wow, you know, I thought that my papa had a different stance and and it, it did seem at the end of the posting that he acknowledged that this had been these weren't his words like somebody else had written this but that he and was he sharing it, it yeah. you know because mm-hmm. it, it did reflect his beliefs um but so i honestly i i had to tell my son i'm sorry if somebody posts that you are only led to believe that this is reflective of their viewpoint. And, and so when my son says, you know, he says to me, you know, mom on the call that I sat in the family call, you know, Papa didn't come across that way at all, but this posting is, is so different. You know, it, it, it comes from a completely different mindset and approach. Mm-hmm. And this is not at all reflective of what he said. And so he was deeply troubled. I'm sure. I'm sure he was. So, Terry, were you aware of this at all? This story that uh, that Tanya just relayed about the Facebook posting. Honestly, I don't go on Facebook much. I'm not. Okay. A, so I'm you're hearing this. You're hearing this for the first time. So okay. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I've read that one, but the nature of it, the way it sounds, knowing Dad, knowing our father, um, I think what he's expressing is confusion, not taking sides with anyone about um especially about political issues on these matters but confusion that sometimes i feel like white people may have over the message um that's trying to get articulated um you know are you you confused do you feel confusion i mean explain what the confusion is from a white perspective if you can i i think there's confusion when there's peaceful protests and then the peaceful protests get out of hand and it becomes rioting and looting and stealing sometimes from black people from black people's owner stores and in black neighborhoods that are being destroyed. And there's confusion about how does that help the cause? How does that help bring change to 
a, a, an area that needs change, absolutely needs change. Um, but how does that, that message get blurred, maybe get confused when um, there's these other dynamics that enter into it and, and, mm -hmm. and the confusion part of it, the, the, and I was listening to another um, podcast from a black man um, un, I think it was uncomfortable conversations with a black man. He was mm -hmm. talking about how uh, explaining some of the, when pain and anger get to such a point, it sometimes comes out in a way that isn't productive. And he was saying himself, he doesn't agree with the riots, doesn't like the riots, but to understand the riots, you have to understand the pain and confusion that's been going on for so long in the black community. Exactly. Sometimes exactly. it boils over. It boils over. Right. And I, and I can it, understand. It, yeah, there's there's that. And then there's also remembering that the vast majority of the protests have been peaceful. Um, and there were also um, outside, you know, forces that sometimes will come in to take advantage of a protest situation. There's yeah, always going to be a criminal element out there that has nothing to do with the protesters who were there for, um, you know, for if, noble reasons. If I had a speak for my dad um i would say that's what he's pointing at is is how is that helpful when the outside forces come in and are destructive how is that well it's not it's not and it, it's it and what it does is that it gives the other side if you will other side in quotes um uh, an opportunity to focus on that instead of the issue because yeah. the issue is real yeah. and the issue is 401 years in the making and um, it is, you know, the, the anguish and the pain that is real and that is palpable. And the fact that the protests have continued to happen is the very reason that we're having this conversation right now. Mm -hmm. It's the protests and the, you know, it's the, the part of our population that has said enough, we're tired of this. You know, we are human beings and we should be treated equally as human beings, as the Constitution says. And we are tired of this. And we have been saying this over and over and over again, and no one is listening. And when no one listens to you, you start to shout. You start to scream. You start to say, I'm talking. Are you hearing me? And what's happening now is that America is finally hearing what we have been saying for centuries. And, you know, when people get angry and upset, you know, that happens, but it has elevated the conversation to the point where it is now, where we are able to have the conversation that has never been had as a society and not even within individual families where race is a factor, but, not really talked about. So, I mean, I saw you shaking your head, um, Tanya. Tell me what your thoughts are on this. Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly, Linda, with everything that you just said. You know, the years, the decades, the onslaught from pain and anguish and, you know, feelings of being undermined or berated or discounted, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. Again, all because of the color of your skin, which let me remind us all, none of us have the option of choosing how we enter this world, you know? You. And so it's... it exactly what you said it's understandable completely and totally and i'm i'm happy that you know it seems like we have the ear of the world right now i really i am but i'm also cautiously optimistic because you know it, will this become a rise in something and then it just goes down and dies down and you know you can't turn on the tv right now without seeing you know this happening here and this happening there and people's emotions are raw and they're yeah. heightened right now. And, and I understand that, but it's, it's a perilous time, you know, right now in this country. And, you know, you have to be very mindful uh, because again, people's emotions are high and, but the concern, and I go back to what Terry said, you know, I would not disagree with you that more than likely our father was expressing confusion in that in that posting i'll give you that but what is heartbreaking to me as well is 
the timing of that release by him on the heels of this letter where I poured out my heart to my, that's my father. That's my dad. I made myself available to he and the rest of the family. Tap into me as a resource. Tap into your grandchildren as a resource. If you're confused, reach out, you know, just posting something like that. I, I just, it, I was left feeling that it has a higher propensity to do more damage than it does good. Because, you know, we all know how social media is and people just like it and this, that, and the other. But, you know, if he really wants to understand, then reach out, do some things to educate yourself. And that's the part that I, that left me feeling very disappointed because I really thought that, you know, again, my letter isn't the be all, the end all, but it did open up a discussion, an opportunity for dialogue. And, you know, as you said, our family really never has been that close. But even after I poured that out, it feels like he didn't take the opportunity that was available to him. And again, to not think, how, he knows I'm not on Facebook, but, but his grandchildren are. So to not think about maybe how that would impact them or how that would leave them feeling honestly is irresponsible. And so it's been very disappointing for me. Um, and I, I have not reached out to him um, about it. I, I may, I have a tendency to sit with things and really think through them. But, you know, I just think there's, there's many opportunities there that, that this, this could go in. And I, I'm just disappointed that maybe he didn't choose the one to reach out that was right in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would strongly encourage Josh to reach out too and have this conversation with grandpa just because if grandpa hears from Josh directly and hears how that comes across, how that impacts him, I'm sure it'll change his mind in a heartbeat. Like he wouldn't want in any day of the week, want to offend his grandson and, and do something that would be seen as racist, racist or, or just unfeeling, not, not understanding the situation. Um, I know, you know, mom's reaction to your letter was similar, uh, that she took it personally as a kind of an offense that you were um, pointing at something she had done along the way that wasn't enough or wasn't right. And that's the that's the first reaction many times when we talk about race is to get de defensive and, you know, um, try to explain ourselves, try to. Well, I have, I have, you know, so-and-so is my black friend. So-and-so is, you know, you hear white people say that all the time, like trying to say, well, I have black friends. I'm not racist. And I think that's the um, downfall of having constructive conversations um, sure. is that we start making excuses. We start defending ourselves instead of just listening. So Terry, has, has this experience with, uh, and I know it's just been, uh, what, two, three weeks since you read the letter to your family. Um, has this experience changed how you interact with your white friends and family members? Well, not family members. Let's talk about friends and colleagues. Has it changed how you um, communicate with them about this issue in particular? I, I think it has. I mean, Tanya bringing this up, um, hit home in a very personal way. If this is impacting her, it's impacting Vanessa and Josh this, this closely, then my friends right here in this community who are black, I need to touch base with them and seeing how it's impacting them. Um, have these conversations with them to, you know, how are you doing? My wife was the same way. She's like, you know, um, we need to reach out. We need to just check in on them and see and, and feel like, you know, see what they're going through. Um, I, I think I was thinking about this this morning, just about how we relate to people in our proximity, you know, even though we have social media and we have all these, all this technology that we can connect to people all over the place. For me, I still connect locally with my friends and, and those outside of my local sphere. I don't connect with much, you know, my family, I don't connect with much because they're so far away. Sure. I'll, get on the phone once in a while or I'll see something on, on the, you know, an email or something, but um, you know, we need to be very thinking about who's in our proximity and really looking at how this impacts their lives. 
because those are the people I really love and cherish and spend most of my time with. And I want to know how they're doing. And, and, you know, I'm sorry, long distance, we don't have as close relationship, especially Tanya, we don't get to connect near as much, but I think that has a lot to do with it. If you were in my neighborhood, you would be at our house every week. We would be having dinner and we would be hanging out. And that's just the reality of how we live our lives here. Yeah. Well, I, I love that, that you're planning to reach out to your black friends. Um, but how is this going to change how you have conversation with your white friends about race? Well, this comes up on the job site every day. I work on a big job site and um, the job sites, mostly white people and, and uh, Hispanic people. There's not very many black um, people in the construction world. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure why. We don't have a very large black community out here on the eastern end of Long Island, but those that are here don't tend to be an electrician and plumber and carpenter, um, the, at least on our job sites. Mm-hmm. And, well, we have a lot of Hispanics, probably at least 50, 60% of the workers are Hispanic. And so um, we deal with that racial dynamic sometimes. And I get really, really um, ticked off when I hear white people disparagingly talking about the Hispanics or disparagingly talking about black people. And I bring it many times I'll confront them on it. And I've even said many times, I have a black brother and sister. I don't appreciate you talking that way in front of me. It's not, you know, you can't treat people that way. And um, so you I do call them out when, when you I, hear that. I do. I do. Cause I can't stand racism. I remember my, my, probably my first glimpse of what, Tanya was going through in South Carolina was when I went home from college and got a summer job in a company in South Carolina. First summer there, first experience with the Southern culture. And I was working with two 18 year old boys, high school graduates who weren't going to college. Um, They would epitomize the term redneck if you wanted to use that term of a a Southern kind of uneducated young man. And we would get into these conversations about race. And I was absolutely blown away by their perspective of white people and black people. And we had a conversation and I said, so if a person, if a black person is given the same opportunity, the same education, the same equal opportunity all along growing up, you're mean to tell me when they get, when they graduate from high school that they're not going to be as smart as a white person just because they're black and they said absolutely and they said it's not their fault they're born that way they just they're they were taught that that black people have a have a smaller brain inherent inferiority yeah that they don't have the opportunity to learn like a white person does and i said Mm -hmm. you are so stupid do you listen to what you're saying and they they would just disagree with me but that's what they were taught as a young uh, as young men and that's what they believed and i just i pounded my head against the wall mm-hmm. so many times mm-hmm. trying to get through to these guys they were so thick-headed um and that's unfortunate that that's what is being taught and maybe i mean that was you know that was almost 30 years ago now but that's what Tony well, was clearly i mean there are still people there. obviously who believe that and those those people that 30 years ago have taught that to their their children and yeah. that's how, right, and that's how it continues. So, Tanya, what do, you, what do you hope comes from your courage in standing in your truth and speaking out first to your family and now here in this public platform? You know, I, I just, I hope that there is an openness by people to just listen. You know, it, we're all different. We're all uniquely different. And I think that's what, you know, that's a positive that makes us beautiful. And, you know, it, it's, it's not really about the color of somebody's skin. It's about the color of your heart. What is on the inside, you know, because 
there are people of all races that can demonstrate racism. Um, and there are people of all races that don't demonstrate racism. And, and I guess my hope is that, you know, somehow my reaching out will prompt others, you know, to internalize and maybe think about ways in which they can make a small difference in their community or in their family or in their environment, you know, wherever they are, because racism is systemic. It is here. It is alive and well. And for some reason that I just can't seem to understand, it threatens people in a way that brings out, you know, all kinds of behaviors that are just unwelcome. And, you know, we talk about how can we fix this? How can we rectify it? I do think it starts with these conversations. Um, You know, your platform, I'm grateful for your platform, for the opportunity. Um, I hope it helps to keep the dialogue going. Um, I hope it inspires others, you know, that gives them a little bit of extra courage to do the same. And and honestly, for those people that are fearful and, and feel defensive, I think I would just say, you know, it, it's understandable. That is a normal feeling. You know, I, I, I understand that. I felt fear when I reached out as well. Um, feeling defensive is normal. But sit with that before you react in it. You know, sit with it for a, a moment of time to try to understand what is going on on the inside of you that causes that? And instead of, you know, reacting or perhaps lashing out at somebody, just, you know, do some self-reflection and just think about it. Um, and, and, and if you can't settle yourself, you know, try to educate yourself. There's so many resources online and just podcasts such as your own, many, many others where it can provide, you know, perspectives of people's lived experiences. And I think, you know, that that's what I want people to understand. We all have our lived experience. Each one of us has our own lived experience. And, and it should be, you know, respected. You know, it should be valued for what it is in the context of that person's life. That is what has shaped each and every one of us. And so I acknowledge that for people, you know, that haven't had a lived experience like mine. And honestly, I appreciate diversity of people so much. I want to learn about it, but I just hope that people can have open hearts and minds because that's what's required, you know, to change a little bit of the way of thinking um, and, and lead with love instead of with you know hatred or dislike just lead with love i could not agree with you more um terry how do you want things to move forward with your family in terms of having this conversation continue clearly there you know there's not been a lot of dialogue since tanya read her letter um she's probably spoken with you more than when than with anyone else Um, How do you see this playing out with your family dynamic moving forward? Well, you know, we are getting together this next, actually, I'm going there this next weekend and having a family gathering. Not everybody's able to come, especially with the virus and how it's hitting different areas. Some of them just feel it's not safe to travel. Um, But I want to have this conversation with those that are there and really emphasized with each one. Um, the necessity to step out of your comfort zone. Don't just sit back and let these things happen around us without partaking, without considering how it impacts, you know, our siblings. And, you know, we should be closer together as siblings and stay more in contact. And so, um, you know, and, and those that struggle with trying to understand it, you know, just helping them along to, to, have conversations. Don't just struggle and not have conversations about it. Open up and talk to those that you're, that if you, you know, you don't understand, ask them, ask them why this impacts them the way it impacts them so that you, your heart is open to, to learn and to grow. That's the only way we get closer. Mm -hmm. Tanya, are you going to be at that family gathering? I am not. Um, I really, I had initially planned to go. This was something that was scheduled, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, way back in January. Um, I had purchased tickets to fly there. 
And, you know, even at the time that I read the letter, I still had everything intact and ready to go. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, being in Texas and the rest of the country knows, the virus is raging um, across the country again, but certainly, certainly here in my community across the entire state. And I, you know, our parents are elderly. Um, we're a rather large family. You know, the number of people that could likely be there would be 50 or more. And, you know, I, I'm even a healthcare provider. It's just not well advised. So for those reasons, and that I would feel terrible if I caught it, if I took it to them, I have made the decision to not attend. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm disappointed because I would very much so have enjoyed the opportunity, you know, to continue the conversation, as Terry mentioned, um, in person, there's value in that, you know, versus through these virtual platforms. Um, but I'm very conscientious as well. And I just feel like, you know, I have to adhere to my conscious and, and healthy health conscious. So no, I will not be attending. I want to share one more piece of your letter um, that that you wrote that really hit me when I when I read it. And I think this is kind of a, a good place for us to wrap up our conversation. You wrote, do you know racism is as insidious as a disease? While you may not know what you can do to help, here are a few thoughts you can consider offering to your fellow Americans who happen to be blessed with black or brown skin. I'm not black, but I see you. I'm not black, but I hear you. I'm not black, but I mourn with you. I'm not black, but I will fight for you. Racism is not just a black thing and it is not just a white thing. It is a human thing and we are all humans. We should treat and support our fellow humankind as we would want to be treated. And that is the bottom line. Such a beautiful, heartfelt letter that you wrote and shared from the depths of your soul. I know it wasn't easy to do that, to share it with your family and now share here. Terry, I know it wasn't easy for you to make the decision to talk about the dynamics and the struggles that your family is having in terms of dealing with what Tanya has brought to the forefront. Um, I thank both of you for having the courageous conversation. I do believe that it will help others. Um, any final thought, Terry, that you want to leave us with? I just love what she just wrote. Um, you know, uh, amen to that is what I would say. <laughs> amen to that. Yes. Tanya, one last word from you. You know what? I, my thanks to Terry. He was the first one to speak up, you know, when I finished reading that letter to my family. And, you know, it, it, it meant so much. Um, it really did. And I appreciate that. I appreciate your willingness, you know, to come on this podcast with me. And, you know, that, that's really all I'm looking for, just a place to start. Just take a step forward with me. It'll be okay. So thank you for doing that. And thank you, Linda, for providing this opportunity. It is my pleasure. Um, I love having conversations like this. It gives me hope. It feeds my soul. Um, it's what our Voices Matter podcast is all about. So thank you both for um, having the courage to speak out and uh, thank our audience for giving them permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. We'll see you next time. The conversation that you just enjoyed is a direct result of Tanya reaching out and saying she was ready. She listened to someone else's courageous conversation and decided that it was time to take the leap. Is it time for you to take the leap? If so, send us an email, contact at laurelmedia.com, and maybe we'll be hosting you on the next Our Voices Matter podcast.